Well, we pick up this morning um, in our study of the book of Esther. As uh, for those of you who haven't maybe been with us through Esther, we're in chapter 4, and we'll read the text as we go throughout um, the, the message rather than read it and then recap it each time. Uh, we'll do that. So um, as we look at this, uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful text. Uh, just a, a bit of a recap is uh, Esther has become queen, and then in chapter 3, uh, we have this massive decree given uh, by King Ahasuerus through the manipulation of Haman uh, that all the Jews will be destroyed. And so that's uh, where it leaves us. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word to us. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen me this morning, that you would empower me by your Spirit, that you would fill and sustain me uh, to proclaim your word clearly and truthfully. Pray for all of our ears uh, to hear, our hearts to be soft to receive, and that you would be at work in us, Lord. Father, would you do this for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Many of you are familiar with the name William Wilberforce. He was a man who, uh, when he was younger, did, though he was kind of grew up in a kind of a, uh, a serious Christian household, he did not have uh, a personal and vibrant faith until he was serving in the British Parliament in his 20s. And as he studied Scripture at that time, things began to change, and the evil of the slave trade and the whole slave empire and system began to distress him more and more. He, he got to the point where he almost left politics over it. Uh, he, he wasn't sure he could be involved in that whole thing, but he was, he was challenged to consider whether he could actually make a difference in the place that he was. And so he was consistently wrestling with the whole idea, wrestling with what to do and, and how to approach it all. And he set a day on which he was to make a decision. He needed to put down a day, and on May 12, 1787, he went and spent the day uh, visiting a good friend who was actually the prime minister, a guy by the name of William Pitt. There's another friend there as well. But in regard to that meeting, one biographer wrote that Pitt said this, Do not lose time, or the ground will be occupied by another. And then uh, the biographer wrote this. He said, What Pitt said was true enough. For if, as Wilberforce thought, God himself was calling him to this task, and he shrank from it, God too could find another to do it, and surely would. The beautiful thing is, if you know the story, is Wilberforce didn't shrink. He believed God put him in this position, and he acted, and it was from that moment on that he pressed forward, and he labored, and labored, and labored in what was really a defining moment for him, and in many ways, a defining moment for Western civilization. And because he did, slavery in the British Empire was abolished. It was obviously a big moment for Wilberforce. But you know what? We all have moments, don't we? Whether they're big like that, none of us have put an end to slavery in that sense. You know, more poignantly, we have these little defining moments each and every day. Things that speak of who we are and of who we trust. And all those moments 
are to be shaped and guided by our trust in the Lord. Well, you know, where we ask the questions, am I going to serve at this moment? Will I sacrifice my own wants, my comfort, things along those lines? And we're going to see some of that today as we look at both Esther and Mordecai and their interaction over this decree that came down through uh, Ahasuerus because of Haman, calling for the extermination of the Jewish people. And my hope is that as we do this, we'll see that belief in the sovereignty of God, belief in His providence, strengthens us to stand firm. But, but not only to stand firm, to actually choose the best thing in the defining moments and in the everyday moments, even when it's difficult. So look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." So when we jump into this, somehow Mordecai had, uh, he had an inside track to what was going on. We, we believe he was an official in the kingdom, but he definitely had an inside track in, in the fact that he learned everything that had taken place. And when he learned it all, I would say, in, in, at least in my terminology, he lost it. He kind of lost it a little bit. He, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He tears his clothes. You know, as you put on, it's, it's like burlap or, a, you know, nobody sees the potato bags anymore. So it's just really scratchy, horrible clothing. Not, not a comfortable wardrobe. And what he's doing is he's expressing deep mourning and grief and distress by doing this. Because what he learned was shocking and his reaction actually reflected the weight of that shock. It reflected the, the degree to how shocking this was. Now, there's something else here, too, though, and, and the text doesn't say it explicitly, but as I read through it, I, I wondered about this, uh, partly because I think it's natural to humanity. It would have been natural to me, at least. I wonder whether Mordecai blamed himself for the edict. We've read the text, we know that the catalyst was because Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. So what was going through Mordecai's head in all of this? Was he wondering, is, is this all my fault? I'm the downfall of the Jewish people? Now, we can't know that answer for sure, but for me, it's hard to imagine that that didn't cross his mind, that that didn't add to, to some of the weight of what he was feeling the, the truth is, is his reaction wasn't the only one like that. The text tells us that, that everywhere this decree went, the Jews acted similarly. They did the same thing. They, they fasted and wept and lamented at what was coming. Now, in this text, this is, this is what I would consider the, the, the first concrete mention of some type of religious obser uh, observance by the Jewish people. They fasted. They fasted. Fasting regularly was accompanied by prayer. That's part of the That's really the main purpose of it. The, uh, by, by fasting, one removes certain distractions or preoccupations to, to be able to focus on prayer. So fasting, as you do it, 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 it displays a decided earnestness. You, you, are, you are saying, this, this really matters. 
I'm going to take this extremely seriously. There's a recognition that there's some concern, there's some issue, there's some situation that is serious, whether it's it's sorrow or spiritual growth or decisions or repentance, these things that are highly consequential, you fast and say, "I, I need the Lord. I need the Lord to be at work in this. It's looking to God and calling on Him. You know, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus took for granted that His disciples, once He was taken away, once He ascended into heaven, that they would fast. Yet, I don't think we fast all that much in our circles. Why not? Ian Duguid wrote, Perhaps it's because we have comfortably isolated ourselves from the grim realities of the world around us. In essence, we're too comfortable. When you think about it, life was going well for the Jews until the end of chapter 3. Even though they're in captivity, they're doing fine. Why why else would they not have already gone back to Jerusalem if it wasn't a comfortable place? I don't think they saw the need until now. They lived in, they were assimilated into the community, and everything seemed fine, but everything changed in an instant, or maybe it became more visible at that point in time. Because the hostility was probably always there. Haman had that rooted hostility from the get-go. You know, folks, how much do we see the need? How much do we see the need to fast and the need for the Lord when our perception is that all is going well. But the reality is that too often we're just wearing blinders, we're stuck in our own world, and we don't see the need. And we don't even see the need in our own world, in our families, in our personal lives. So here's a challenge for us in this is, can we start to see the need? Can we start to see it? Not just from danger, but really out of desperation that we need the Lord. If the Lord doesn't go with us, I'm not going to go. And I need to know where the Lord's going, so I need to seek His face. That we pray out of desperation for the Lord and His wisdom and His strength. Back to Mordecai, though. One thing is, is he didn't put on a spectacle merely to express his distress. That was definitely a significant part of it, is he was, he was distraught over the thought of the Jewish people dying. There was another reason. Author tells us he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. He couldn't go any further. The king, king doesn't want people sad and in sackcloth and ashes in his court. There's no way. You, you keep that isolated. But he wasn't trying to get the attention of the king. He was trying to get the attention of the queen. Look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Now think about this. This is something that amazes me here is, Esther had no clue why Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes. Clueless. She, she, she just, her, her response is, just 
Give him better clothes so he can put them on. Okay, it's, gotta be, it's uncomfortable. Just give my cousin better clothes. But he didn't take them. He wouldn't put them on. So she's, at that point, she's like, okay, Hathak, can, can, please just go figure out what's going on with him. Can you go figure it out? Because once he refused, I think it became fairly clear to her that there's, there's something more serious. There's something maybe more desperate going on with her cousin, and she needed to know why, and she was about to find out. Look at verse 6. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So Mordecai takes the time. He explains everything to Hathak, all of it, even how much money Haman promised. So this is where we know we have this inside track, how much money Haman promised to put into the king's treasury. And part of the reason I think that's so significant is this shows how serious this is, because as, as we looked at before, it's a rather large sum of money. That's almost a year's worth of taxes for the kingdom. It's a huge sum of money. And he gave a copy of the decree to Hathak. Uh, the, 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 the whole thing that set forth the, the annihilation, the, the destruction of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Esther needed to see for herself the imminent danger that was to come on her people. Hopefully that she would be um, compelled to go to the king and beg his favor, beg that this decree would not be fulfilled. This was really as serious as it could be at this point in time. This was the greatest threat to the existence of the Jewish people since they were in Egypt. You know, this, the captivity, yes, it was a threat in some ways, but most of them survived. They were assimilated into culture. But now the end is in the foreseeable, and actually you could put a date on it, future. You know, think if you woke up and, and knew, in 11 months, we're all dead on this exact day, because everybody else is going to kill us. And the, the hard thing is Esther had to have it all made known to her. She had no idea. It shows how isolated she was, not only from her people, but from really the whole goings-on throughout the entire kingdom. But Mordecai's command to go into the king doesn't sit real well with her. Look at verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servant and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. You would call this a pretty major roadblock at this point in time. Because if anyone approaches the king without being called, death is a high likelihood. 
The only safe protocol at this point in time was to, to send a message through one of the seven trusted subjects of the king uh, to, to ask for an appearance with him and just wait and see if he gets back with you. But she also hasn't been called for 30 days, which in my mind, and it seems like in hers, she's kind of fallen out of favor a little bit. She's not really on the king's mind. He's not thinking about her. I'm sure, you know, he's just, Esther's, she's, yeah, whatever. But she's thinking too, like, he he hasn't called for me. He doesn't want me. Why? why? I can't go. He's not going to hold out the golden scepter to me. This reality adds a pretty serious wrinkle to the whole situation. You know, death, life or death, that's, that's a pretty defining moment. That's a, that's a decision to make. And the simple truth was, even though she hasn't been called for 30 days, she lives a pretty comfortable life. She's got attendants, she's got young women, she's got people doing whatever she needs. Why would she risk all of that? Why would she give up that comfort? She's the queen! Does this really affect her? You know, to say the least, she's a bit reticent. You know, I love that Scripture puts this all in here. In some ways, I find this really comforting. That the heroines and the heroes of Scripture are very flawed people. They're sinners, just like you and me. They wrestle with tough decisions. They're scared. They're worried. They're anxious. She's a bit faint-hearted about this whole prospect, and not surprising. This is a really challenging situation. It's life or death. But I love how Scripture points that out. Because sometimes we can look at, you know, you read maybe missionary biographies or other things, and you're like, oh, man, I could never do that. That person's amazing. It's God who's amazing. We're all flawed, and God works through flawed human agents. You know, we are called to stand firm and be bold, but being afraid and worried is pretty natural. But you can also imagine that at this point in time, that's Esther's reaction, that when Mordecai hears that, his desperation is pretty high. He's not in the king's palace. He doesn't think there's any protection for him in any way. And so the the response he receives from Esther is going to warrant a pretty firm reply from him. Let's look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He didn't pull any punches in his reply, did he? Strong, and it was highly persuasive. The reality is Esther has to choose between two options. He's saying, okay, Esther, you can continue to try and be a secret Jew. 
just living in the kingdom and in your prosperity. And yes, there's a little bit of irony here that Mordecai told her to be a secret Jew. But nonetheless, he's saying you can continue to be a secret Jew or you can take the risk, go to the king, identify with your people, and possibly save them all from utter annihilation. She can't do both. One cannot be a private Jew or a private Christian and at the same time a public pagan. or public agnostic, or public whatever. You can't do it. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or, will he be, he, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve God in comfort. You can't serve God in conformity to the world. You cannot serve God in, well, you name it. You cannot serve anything else alongside God. You cannot have two masters. You will either have God or something else, which is quite often ourselves. You can't have them both as master. We have to learn to be willing to give up whatever it is that we might want to hold on to, that, that other master and, that, that we want to hold on to, but we have to learn to give it up for the sake of the Lord. Daily. You know, if we're not faithful in the little things daily, it's going to be very difficult to be faithful in the big things. You know, will we deny our comfort, our desires to follow our master? That's hard. It's easy to get into ruts. It's easy to get into the ways that we always do things. But will we do it? Are we willing Matthew 10, 38 and 39, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, if we seek, if we seek to hold on to everything we have, we're going to lose it all. Okay, folks, we've got to learn to trust. And, and to give up whatever we may be called to give up, in the moment by moment, in order to follow Christ, in order to serve him. You know, Mordecai's response to her is pretty severe. But it's necessary. Because he, he tells her, he says, if you choose to remain silent, you and your house are done. You will all perish. And this, this is not a threat, though some actually think it was a threat from Mordecai. I don't think so. He loves her so dearly. It's a warning that you're not going to be safe in the king's palace. You're not going to be exempt simply because you're queen. You think Haman's hatred is going to stop and say, oh, okay, we'll just keep the queen. No. Mordecai is seeking to persuade her to do what she can to bring about the salvation of her people. But, you know, even though he presses her so forcibly at this moment, he also shows some very real confidence in God. Now, this may not be as explicit of language as, as we want or as explicit of language as, as we read in, in Paul's letters or, or in the Gospels, things along those lines. But what I hear here, I, I think there, there's so clearly implied trust in the Lord. Because he states this, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise 
for the Jews from another place. Mordecai's trusting in the Lord's providence. He's stating that God will act either through her or through another, but the fact is God will act. There's, there's not a sense here that, hey, hey, Esther, you're my first choice. If you fall through, I, I really hope God's going to come along. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Esther, or Esther, God is going to use you, and if you choose not to, he's going to use somebody else. Relief will come for the Jews. The Jews will be delivered but if you don't act, you're going to die. And he's very certain of this. There, there doesn't seem to be any wavering in what he says. So where does he get that hope and confidence? We've, we've seen nothing of it so far in this, in, in, in this book. Well, ostensibly, he's a Jew. He's been taught. He still knows the promises of God. He still knows of God's faithfulness. To his covenant, he knows, believes the words of like the song that we sang earlier, Psalm 121. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He believes the Lord is the keeper of his people. And Esther, whether you act or not, he will keep his people. As one commentator wrote, Mordecai rests secure in the sovereign faithfulness of the covenant-keeping God whose promises never fail. He trusts that the Lord who reigns over Haman's wicked heart and Ahasuerus' perverted power and Esther's fear-filled mind also rules the destiny of his people and has promised to deliver them when they call upon him in faith. Folks, this is what deep belief in God's sovereignty and his covenant faithfulness and providence ought to do for people. It reassures us. It's our, it's our comfort. It's not some stale doctrine that when we say, hey, I believe in the sovereignty of God, that's not a stale doctrine that is kind of like, Ugh. it's actually huge comfort for us that God is in control. It's a balm for the soul all of our days, in the midst of trying times, in the midst of the day today, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I've been bought with a price. That the Lord has said, you are mine. That's my comfort. It's a source of strength and courage. The Lord is a refuge in which we can rest safe and secure. The commentator goes on, he says, the sovereignty and faithfulness of God is the scriptural medicine for the disease of fear. You kill the germ of anxiety with a hefty dose of divine sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, your life rests in the hand of God, the God of, of the God of infinite faithfulness, goodness, and grace, and you could not be safer nor more secure. I think of, I can't remember the, the missionary who it was, basically said, I'm immortal until the Lord calls me. Like, what can, what can they do to me? Because the Lord has my days set. I'm going to step out in faith, and I'm going to walk, and I'm going to live for the Lord. Mordecai displays trust in the sovereignty of God. But you know what that trust in the sovereignty of God does not mean? It does not mean that one is design, resigned to let whatever happens happen. Belief in God's sovereignty does not commend to us inaction. 
It doesn't say, sit on your rear end and just wait. I love what Calvin wrote in regard to how belief in God's providence does not excuse us from action. So this means that we are not at all hindered by God's eternal decrees, either from looking ahead for ourselves or from putting all our affairs in order, but always in submission to his will. The reason is obvious. For he who has set the limits to our life has at the same time entrusted to us its care. He has provided means and helps to preserve it. He has also made us able to foresee dangers that they may not overwhelm us unaware. He has offered precautions and remedies. Now it's very clear what our duty is. Thus, if the Lord has committed to us the protection of our life, our duty is to protect it. If he offers helps, to use them. If he forewarns us of dangers, not to plunge headlong. If he makes remedies available, not to neglect them. We continue to work, laboring, stepping out in faith, trusting in his sovereignty. That's what the book of Esther teaches us in many ways. It teaches us about God's sovereignty. It's about his providential care for his people, about his covenant faithfulness. But in his faithfulness, he uses humans. He uses human agency, as Mordecai said to Esther, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That language is not about Mordecai just taking a wild guess or hoping that chance and coincidence are there. This is trust in providence. He believed God put her there in this position but whether she acted or not would not hinder whether God was faithful to his covenant. So look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. Esther agreed. She asked the people to fast, to, to pray for favor. She too is going to do the same thing for three days. And she says, I'm going to act. I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm resolved, even, that if I, even if I perish, I perish. But she's going to step out in faith and act to save the people of God, to be that agent that God uses. I don't think there could have been a more defining moment for Esther. I, I couldn't think of a moment that surpasses that. It's a defining moment in the history of God's people. But you know what? Esther's moment is really just a picture of a greater moment in history one that Jesus went through on behalf of all his people. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
They came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus faced a defining moment, much greater than Esther's. Esther was, she was troubled and fearful. She, she knew it was a possibility of death. Jesus was sorrowful even unto death. Esther was able to get her people to fast with her for three days. Jesus' disciples couldn't stay awake for one hour to pray for him. Esther avoided the cup for three days. Jesus willingly stepped forward to drink the cup of wrath for us. Esther went to the king knowing that she might perish. Jesus moved forward knowing that he would. He was resolute in his conviction. Even though there would be no reprieve for him, he would feel the full weight of the wrath of God against the sin of his people. And his defining moment has defined all of ours. All of our big, all of our small. And I think about it, what are we willing to do? And how are we willing to have our lives shaped in light of what he has done for us? In light of his moment. So let's let his, his sacrifice, his work on our behalf, the glory of the gospel, put our moments into perspective. Help us to see how we can live in following after Christ, stepping forward, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it's not what we want to do, but it, we, we know it's what God has called us to. And we step out in faith. Let us consider our Savior. Let us remember that we're called to daily walk in faith in all of our defining moments, to walk in the ways of the Lord, to know that we're safe and secure in Him, no matter whether it's hard, no matter whether it takes away something that we want. But yet as we serve, we're conformed more and more to the image of our Savior, and we can be the ones as well that reflect what He has done for us. He is our hope in life, in all of life, in the little, in the big, and most certainly in death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great hope that we have. God, would you strengthen us in all that we are and all that we do? Help us to, to walk with you. Thank you that we see someone like Esther who struggled but yet stepped out in faith, who stepped forward with resolve. Lord, you work through flawed people, and that is such a comfort for us because we are all flawed. We're all sinners. Thanks for how you love us and you care for us.
Continue to work in us, Lord, for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen.